Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend of mine asked if I would record myself reading one of my novels as something they would find comforting and familiar in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be reading to you from Perishables, the first book in my five-book urban fantasy and vampire series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka FalstaffBooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Perishables link. That goes to Amazon. Thanks. Okay. Sorry about the other night when I had to leave abruptly. And I'm sorry about yesterday when I totally failed to get an episode out. But yesterday was complicated. And this weekend is complicated, but next week is going to be okay. We're all just going to tell ourselves that every Friday until we die, probably. And that's just going to be the way it is. Anyway, let's get back into our happy story about zombies and vampires and neighborhood associations. This is the conclusion of part one, The Vampire of Perishables. It is the first of three parts of this book, so there is more to come. And after that, I might go ahead and read Dracula. That would take a long time, but that'd be a lot of fun, and I would love to reread it. It's a great excuse. So, anyway. Oh, also, I went into the office to uh, pick up some stuff and grabbed my good microphone while I was there, and now I'm going to sound a lot better than I did before. So, installment eight of part one, The Vampire of Perishables. It took us ten minutes to walk to my house, neither of us speaking the entire way. Smiles trotted along next to us, sniffing the curb and growling at the tracks of a downed walker here or there. Mary Lou was calm, but clearly wary of being out and about. There weren't any problems, though, and in the distance we could see the occasional blue and red flash of a patrol car's lights. We went up the front steps and onto my porch in the dark, her hand on my arm so she wouldn't stumble, and I unlocked the front door, had her wait while I disarmed the security system, and then I hit that bank of light switches with that same sweeping motion so that the yard and the house were lit up like the 4th of July. Come in, I said over my shoulder. Smiles was home again and glad of it, and he bounded into the kitchen and practically dove into his bowl and started crunching happily. Me, I went on my usual circuit of the downstairs, left into the dining room, on into the kitchen, a glance out the sliding glass door, then to the right, crossing the end of the front hall, into the den, then right again into the sitting room. Everything was exactly as I'd left it. There were, I noted, a couple of bloody handprints on the sliding glass door. I paid good money for bulletproof glass, though, and no walker was going to get through there with a couple of slaps and what gumption it could muster. It had moved on, I imagined, to some easier target. I had very consciously left Mary Lou behind to absorb things at her own pace. My place is nothing particularly special. I tend to keep myself in comfort, but I'm not extravagant, and my house is one of the oldest in the neighborhood. She peeked into the dining room, starting off at first just following me, but in the kitchen she stopped and watched Smiles eat his chow for a few moments, then looked out into, onto the back deck. I watched her note the handprints also. Then she glanced into the sitting room and walked into the den. Her eyes were not on my furniture or the carpet or the general decor. 
The furniture and carpet were new 10 years ago, and decor is standard American suburban. Neutral walls, neutral carpet, earth-toned couch and matching chair, and a sturdy wooden coffee table. The TV is big, but not fancy. It, too, was new 10 years ago. The thing she was looking at, or at least I'd thought so at first, was that everywhere on the walls I'd put up my own art. Landscapes and portraiture and a few impressionistic pieces I'd done over the years. A few examples of Cubist knockoff, that kind of thing. As far as I was concerned, this art was all the equivalent of the everyday China. Not special, not the kind you mention in the will, but nice enough to look at. I wondered if she were impressed or horrified or annoyed or what. I stood in the doorway, having returned from my cursory downstairs sweep, and watched her as she stood in the center of the den and turned in a circle and looked it all up and down, every wall. Where are the pictures? she asked. Pictures? Photos, you know, friends, family. Mary Lou cleared her throat. It seems lonely. She paused again. Generic. This from a woman with a modern marble squatting on top of a quarter-acre lot. What do you mean by that? Her voice was immediately defensive, and I sighed in reply. I don't keep photos around. So that part's true. I don't follow you. Mary Lou had the decency to blush a little. That part of the movies... You can't have your picture taken. I frowned. My patience was wearing thin. Mary Lou had not gotten the point. I decided to deliver it myself, and an emotion had crossed the eight feet between us and wrapped one fat hand around her throat, leaning in close. I do not keep photos because that sort of life is over for me, I whispered. Get this, Mary Lou Reinholdt. You wanted to know if I wanted a friend? You thought I would bring you here and we'd have tea and cookies and play patty cake and then you'd leave and I'd let you remember everything and you'd get to pretend you'd done me a favor? Mary made a squeaking noise and I relaxed my grip very slightly so she could breathe. Then I pulled her a centimeter closer. Mary Lou, I whispered, let me be clear. I don't want a friend. Friendship does not mean the same thing to me as it does to you. Kindness has a different definition for me than it does for you. You want to come here and make nice and try to integrate me into your view of how your safe little world works. You don't like that you relied on me for your safety earlier, that for a moment you people weren't in control, that you were weak. And so you want to be able to just file me away as a friendly weirdo. I turned my head and spat blood foam against the window that overlooked the fenced backyard. It isn't like that, Mary Lou. I am different. I am me. I wanted you to come here and see that. Yes, I have a couch and cable TV and a dog, but my dog is part devil and my couch is only ever going to have one worn spot on it, and I don't keep photos of my friends around because we don't exactly take beach trips together. My life is not like yours. I started walking towards the kitchen, dragging her with me, and turned her so she could see the refrigerator. I hooked the door handle with one thumb and tugged it open. You see that? I asked. Top shelf, food and drink. The three shelves under that? I paused. Those are blood bags, Mary Lou. I am a different kind of creature. I will not be domesticated. I cannot be domesticated. Her eyes were wide and she was producing little gasping noises again, so I let go altogether, save for one turn of her shoulder to point her at the sliding glass door. I pointed one finger at the bloody handprints. Those were made by an animal, and you don't like animals. You don't like smiles because somewhere deep in your lizard brain you have a fear reaction to him. You don't like me because you get the same case of the willies when I'm around. When you saw those first couple of walkers out in the street, you froze because they were outwardly other. But me? 
I met her eyes with mine as she turned to look at me in abject terror. I have a face, and I have eyes, and I can join you for dinner and make nice conversation if I need to, and that's worse for you somehow. But rather than just accept that, rather than accept that I've lived in this neighborhood for 50 years without bothering anybody in it, rather than just let me be me and you be you and go our separate ways, you have to try to be friends. Well, save it for the status-conscious gay Republican who moves in down the street one day, where the black couple who feel uncomfortable around a bunch of crackers like us. Save her for whatever inescapably different people. Emphasis on people, Mary Lou, move in here one day. Don't waste it on me. Don't try to put me on a leash or box me up the way you did with smiles. Again, I leaned in close and whispered into her ear, and don't think you can sit there in your living room with your big-ass gun and some moxie and best me like some mindless thing. We are different animals altogether. Them and me, and me and you. We're as far apart as you are from them, Mary Lou, and I want you to know that, to remember that deep down somewhere, maybe in a recurring nightmare, maybe in a chill that runs up your spine the next time we have a neighborhood association meeting and I walk in the room. However your subconscious chooses to tuck it away, just remember that. I paused to draw one more long breath. You were impressed that I went out among them and fought back last night because you have never been invaded. I moved out here 50 years ago, way outside of town, to get away from you animals, only to have a bunch of other hermits show up and out of nowhere. Then the developers invaded and built houses all around us and paved the streets and put in streetlights. Then you showed up and invaded the invaders. Now the city is trying to move in on you by running sewer lines and annexing us. Last night was just one more wave in a series for me, Mary Lou. It simply happened to be a lot more honest than the previous ones. She was digging her fingers into the edge of the counter on the island in the middle of my kitchen, behind her back, trying to fight the urge to cower against it. I stood back and looked her in the eye. You arrogant piece of shit, she said. And I confess, I respected her for that. Then I reached into her mind and made her forget. Fifteen minutes later, she was asleep in her bed next to her husband. I'd walked her back. She would later remember this as an adventurous and slightly terrifying jaunt we'd taken together to see whether my house was safe and made sure she was inside. Their kids would be home the next day, assuming the cops and the guard lifted the travel restrictions in and out of the city. I let myself out the front door, locking the knob and pulling it shut behind me. Smiles and I had a spring in our step as we went up the street. I could see the flicker of TVs in some of the houses, including some with my big yellow X's on the doors. TVs were still on where their owners had died. Life goes on, even with a corpse on the couch. There were lights in some of the ones without the X's, too, and from those I could hear quiet voices, the sounds of normalcy struggling for a foothold in the face of something bizarre and inexplicable and inescapable. I rounded the curve where West End met Buckingham and turned right up the sidewalk towards my own house. A cop standing next to a police cruiser swung around at the sound of my footsteps and shined his flashlight in my face, real bright. I tossed a hand up to block my eyes and said, God damn! He took the light out of my face and shined it at Smiles, then dropped the beam to the ground and leaned into the radio on his shoulder. S4-S3, encounter, investigating. A squawk answered and the cop stepped forward. Can I help you, sir? Just headed to my house, I said. I live up this street. Spent last night and today with some folks from the neighborhood. The cop eyed us both, then nodded, gesturing with the flashlight. I'll radio you ahead. Please go directly home. If you need emergency supplies, a Red Cross van will be through this development at noon tomorrow. Thanks, but uh, I'm all stocked up, I replied, and I turned to go back the way I had been headed. 
As Ford S3, the cop said into his radio, had a live one, provided direction, over. An affirmative crackle put the cop back in his normal, watchful pose. A live one, I thought. I heard that cop's voice over and over again in my head as I walked the rest of the way home. A live one, he'd said. A live one. And that concludes Part 1 The Vampire. Now, in Perishables, there are a couple of interludes. At the end of each part, there is a recipe for post-apocalyptic cooking. Most of these are actual recipes. Uh, one of them I found on some sort of survivalist website when I was writing the book. I'm sure I have an FBI file for having done that. And it's not like that's the thing I did that got me one, though. But anyway, um, the other ones are ones that I took like regular recipes and just sort of tried to modify them myself. But I am willing to bet that each of these would actually work. And the one at the end of part one is powdered ambrosia. Ambrosia salad has been around since the late 19th century and is a southern staple on the church social and family reunion circuits. Withrow has eaten mountains of the stuff over the decades, and one can find a million recipes online. Its component parts might be hard to find in the event of societal collapse, but with a little creativity, one can produce a passable variant. Better living through science. One package spray-dried, full-fat, powdered, heavy cream. One package spray-dried, full-fat, coconut milk. One can shaved coconut, optional. One can eight ounce fruit cocktail drained of water or syrup. One can eight ounces of pineapple chunks drained. One can 11 ounces of mandarin oranges drained. One jar or tin of ground nutmeg and one jar or tin of ground cinnamon. All of these ingredients have one major advantage. They can be found in the warehouse of any restaurant supplier, a business to which most people want things to turn in desperation. The powdered heavy cream and coconut milk in particular will almost always only be findable on the shelves of a commercial wholesaler. Prepare a significant quantity of heavy cream using the liquid from the canned fruits instead of water, but otherwise as per package directions. If you have the coconut milk powder, you can mix the powder directly into the resulting cream. It will sweeten the cream and give it body without needing to find sugar. Whisk the cream, or mixture, vigorously for several minutes until it becomes frothy and starts to stiffen. If you have powered tools available, use a hand mixer or stand mixer. Mix in the drained canned fruit and stir to distribute evenly. Sprinkle a couple of tablespoons of nutmeg and cinnamon each on top and stir again to incorporate it. Top with shaved coconut and consume immediately. Due to the fat content of the powdered cream, this could go rancid in a few hours if left unrefrigerated. Uh, next time, I will start us on part two, The College Town. Talk to you all then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. The theme music is Plucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org.